A few weeks ago, I thought I might start a YouTube channel with me on there yakking about psychotherapy-related stuff, particularly with regard to my latest obsession in this field, personality and ego psychology, as systematized by the Enneagram. Now that we are all existing predominantly in the metaverse, think of the amount of time each day you spend engaging with avatars and disembodied beings, the YouTube platform suggests itself as perhaps the best way or maybe the only way, to join in with this virtually embodied global conversation so as to use the language, as W.S. Graham says we should or could, in order to be, quote, telling each other alive, about each other alive. Everything I have ever written, drawn, painted, sung, or revealed to another via this living squeeze box or accordion of throat and vocal cords has been somehow in pursuit of this sort of essential communication. I don't know what else to call it other than that. The intense expressive urge to relate, to capture in words of some genre something meaningful beautiful and or true. It's a kind of blessing, if by blessing we mean something akin to bliss, but also quite often an onerous and irksome compulsion, as many of our instinctive drives can become. Most of the time, us human animals, like other creatures, breathe out silently. We are also able, through various postures and movements within the vocal tract, to interfere with this aggressive airstream in order to generate complex sounds and tonalities, which can then, consciously or not, be channeled towards a living target, a you. Hello. Meaningful noises or how we might frame these somewhat sophisticated modulations, as opposed to the grunts and groans, the barking and howling of our fellow animal persons who haven't evolved this hypertrophic symbolic system yet, this form of precise and oftentimes pedantic articulation that we call language. Plain as a needle, a poem may be, or opulent as the shell of the channeled whelk or the face of the lily, it matters not, writes Mary Oliver in her essay collection Long Life. Quote, it is a ceremony of words, a story, a prayer, an invitation, a flow of words that reaches out and, hopefully, without being real in the way that the least incident is real, is able to stir in the listener, a real response. What might that real response be? And how would you know if you were having it? Well, maybe a comment on a YouTube platform might count for a real response at the simplest level. 
you telling me what you think of what I've just said, what it means to you, without any relational filters. I like the idea of this, so I crack on in my bid to start a YouTube channel. I set my phone on a tripod and try making a few videos in that chatty, cheery YouTube format that we all wolf down without even seeing it as a format these days, a rhetorical gameplay designed to keep ears and eyeballs engaged. One thing I learn from doing this is that the reflection in the lenses of my glasses appear to get in the way so that the aliveness I want to capture or convey, an aliveness that for me goes beyond words, beyond content, something connected to that koan of the soul or spirit, something transmittable through voice and eye, this doesn't carry through the moving image of my face without a clear and unimpeded access to my soul orbs, the teats, the udders, the honkers and the hooters, the headlights of my soul, you might say, my eyes. My eyes being really just those bits of brain poking out of my skull in the form of gelatinous colour-flecked orbs, transmitting, always transmitting, something, it would seem, as skin and hair and facial features often can't or don't or won't. In her poem, Little Dog's Rhapsody in the Night, Mary Oliver wakes up to find her beloved poodle Percy, his eyes, quote, dark and fervent, expressing, well, what? Maybe, as Hafiz tells us, expressing what every eye in this world is dying to hear. Love me. Tell me you love me, Mary Oliver reads from Percy's eyes. Tell me again to which the poet and the poem respond, could there be a sweeter arrangement? Over and over he gets to ask, I get to tell. If you have someone who's up for an intimate connection, why not spend a little bit of time today facing that person and looking with curiosity and love into their eyes for a minute or two? Even better, treat this like a formal meditation and do it for 10 minutes or more. It's often quite a discomforting experience at the start, but worth persisting with, seeing if you can get to that point of relaxing into the presence of the other through their soul craters or crevices, which we call their eyes. I would be surprised if after doing this, you didn't feel both more connected in a very real and meaningful way, as well as much more aware of who you and they essentially are, which is to say, what your essence really is. And just think, this can all be done without words. In fact, as soon as you bring the words back in, they only obscure things. When Max doesn't get freaked out by me looking for a prolonged period into his eyes, I can very much see the essence of his doggy soul there. And it is no different to mine, I tell you, absolutely no different. Even though we human animals would prefer to separate and categorize his essence as canine and ours as the clever clog species, I don't see any difference in the soul of the eye. The clever clog species is a literal translation of Homo sapien, 
You can imagine that so-called father of modern taxonomy, Carl Linnaeus, who organized the living world into Latin in his 1735 magnum opus, Systemum Natura, presumably thinking as he created his nested hierarchy of taxonomic terms and categories, a planogram of the living world divided into kingdoms, classes, orders, genera, and finally species. Imagine Carl at some point going to himself, hmm, now, what would be a fitting nomenclature for me, for us? Maybe let's call ourselves, yes, every single one of us, the wise ones, the clever clogs, we who never screw up or create irreparable damage in pursuit of our desires. Yes, let's call ourselves that. Homo sapiens. But if you look into another Homo sapiens eye for an extended period of time, if you step through the circular portals or doors of their soul, in the words of Mary Oliver, full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness, that shadow within the light of the other's being, at that moment, do we not escape the realms, the cages of taxonomy, including that of personality? Which only goes to reaffirm the reason why I decide that you being able to see my eyes in this YouTube rectangle of light and color is key, absolutely key, to transmitting my own soul into the mix. So I head off to Specsavers to see if I can acquire some contact lenses and maybe utilize those behind a pair of lensless frames. I go through the hoopla of acquiring contacts only to remind myself, for I've gone through this hoopla before when I danced salsa and got tired of my glasses slipping around on my sweaty face, I remind myself of the faff, the utter faff with regard to contact lenses, the all too invasive fiddling of fingertips across that delicate sacred sphere of the eyeball, especially when it comes to the sliding and the pinching off of the damn things in order to detach them once more from this layer of nervous and possibly even nervy retinal tissue that covers the inside of our optics, that place where most of the stimulation and simulation of this world continues to confront us through the medium of light and shadow. I think this is why the idea or image of poking someone's eyes out feels like the most barbaric thing we could do to another human being. Poking out their eyes or mutilating their genitals, in terms of the trauma this would impart, feels much more profound than the cutting off of a finger or even a limb. A profound attack on personhood, we might say. A devastation of everything we hold sacred with regard to our own species. Of course, we completely ignore this with regard to every other species, but that's another podcast. The contact lenses are not the only reason that I pack in this idea of a YouTube channel after a few weeks of trying it out. I guess what it boils down to is that I can't deal with the shame of seeing myself on a screen. I have no other word for it. The shame of seeing this embodied creature objectified in the shape of a blinking, gulping, grinning primate. A primate sincerely, but also awkwardly attempting, as we are all awkwardly attempting, merely through our own creaturely presence and the patter of our scripts, to invite another thinking and feeling individual into our imaginative sphere asking them to stick around for whatever jibber-jabber we've got to give them, perhaps in the hope of listening or seeing each other alive, about each other alive, or something in that vein. Before I chuck it in, I 
make a few videos, upload them, and then wonder how long I will be able to continue deluding myself in my ability to hold your attention in that format for more than about 30 seconds. Very few of us can hold someone's attention in that way. The word, of course, for those of us who achieve this feat of attracting attention is charisma, whose etymology suggests not just a special spiritual gift or power divinely conferred, an act of grace bestowed upon one creature and not another, Jesus rather than John, but also a simple descriptor of how we feel in the presence of that charismatic figure, from the Greek word kairin, to rejoice at, also from the Proto-Indo-European root word meaning to like or want. We all want charisma, another word for this is confidence or healthy self-esteem, because we all like charisma, both the feeling of having it or seeing it in another. Which reminds me of my favorite Nabokov quote that probably also negates everything I've just said in the last five minutes. The quote being, I think like a genius, I write like a distinguished author, and I speak like a child. Apply that to me in a YouTube video and you get something like, I think like a social media feed, I write like an Enneagram 4, and I speak like a precocious and overexcitable 12-year-old, a sort of J.D. Salinger character the overexcitable 12-year-old who has spent too much time with his nose in a dictionary. I'm always grateful, therefore, when my shame-configured ego, twos, threes, and fours in the Enneagram are image types, so shame is strong in their souls, when that part of the ego stops me from making a fool of myself, or even more of a fool of myself than I already unguardedly am wont to do. Again, that W.S. Graham koan. What is the language using us for? It uses us all, and in its dark of dark actions, selections differ. I am not, ideally, making a fool of myself for you. What I am making is a place for language in my life, in our lives, which I want to be a real place, seeing I have to put up with it anyhow. When it's over, writes Mary Oliver, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I don't know if this has happened for you yet, but there seems to come a time in the life of the human animal where the marker of existential finitude becomes all too real and concrete in consciousness. As Ernest Becker reminds us in his classic book, The Denial of Death, quote, the unconscious does not know death or time. In our physiochemical inner organic recesses, we all feel immortal. This, of course, is a deeply narcissistic as well as repressed perspective ingrained in all of us. From the inside, it takes its place in consciousness like this. Everyone else is expendable, and this is of course shown in my relationships by and large, as well as in that greater existential arc of sickness unto death, which everybody must traverse. Everybody must traverse that arc of sickness unto death, apart from me. You know that snail you accidentally stood on last night, walking up the garden path, 
the crunch of its shell, the collapse of its body underfoot. Well, that's how it will be for you and me one day, just like that. For the rest of the world, though, our demise will be just another oopsie-daisy. For the individual who is dying, oh, shit, and then, game over. But for everyone else, what's for dinner? What's on the telly? took a blind and dumb organism, Becker tells us, and gave itself consciousness and a name, if you made it stand out of nature and know consciously that it was unique, this would give you a death-defying, fundamentally narcissistic creature. Every one of us, as children, developed this healthy narcissism, this magical omnipotence, a sense of our own indestructibility, a feeling of proven power and some sort of inner outer support system which will hopefully shield us from conclusive discontinuation, either in the heart or mind of another or in the organic system of life. The system that is set up to counter this more real system is the ego or our personality patterns. To sense this, not just as an abstract concept in a poem or a podcast or embedded in those three words, when it's over, but to really know that it will be over, truly over, finished and done with, to really feel that truth in all three of our human operating systems, gut, head and heart, might, as Mary Oliver's Memento Mori poem suggests, potentially sharpen both our inherent narcissism, to feel central in some way, to another or ourselves, but equally it might incentivize our desire to leave behind, if we can, and there's the rub, that self or ego pattern which, like snail slime, is always intent on passing through the world as if we were something particular and real. I feel particular and real, standing in my cupboard at this moment speaking to you, and you feel probably fairly particular and real, listening wherever you are listening to me. But are we? Our creative projects, our professional legacies, the co-created relational imprints of marriage or romantic partnership rendered as memories, will all be inconsequentially terminated, and in fact, have already been inconsequentially terminated. Where does that leave us? Perhaps with a form of self-inquiry in terms of how we're doing this dance or game of life. In this dance, her dance, Mary Oliver intends to be a bride married to amazement, navigating her way through the world via wonder and curiosity and an eye or ear for the poetic sublime. This, we might say, is, or was, Mary Oliver's sole work, to which the poem attests, even though it only conveys a very small symbolic imprint of her non-specific, non-agenda-led agenda. Where others might get trapped in the particular and the real, 
how can I make something of my so-called self, Mary Mary, quite contrary, says, no, I'm going to just head out of the house each day with a packet of fags, a pen and a notebook, with all my senses wide open to the world around me, especially the natural world, and make my reporting back about that, only that, for there lies my treasure. And that, as far as I understand it, is how Mary Oliver lived as Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver also died a few years back as someone, maybe even as Mary Oliver, and I presume in the years preceding her death, she carried around, as we all do, a smartphone and perhaps filled some of its storage with attempts to capture the beauty, strangeness and personal import of this world as it became her world, living it and enjoying it through her senses. A lot of her poems read like meditative snapshots of an intensely lived or alive moment suffused with intimate connotations. A lot of poetry does this, really. Maybe that's what poetry is for, to some extent. Wouldn't it be fun to see the scenes that Mary Oliver snapped when walking around in her own Mary Oliver body, seeing the world through her eyes? The images we collect on our handheld devices, snaps taken to illustrate a point in a text message or capture something we're reading or some glimpse of an externalised verity we want to hold on to, are, in a very real sense, the imaginal imprint of our souls, our alive consciousness, our particular locus of awareness and experience that is able to conceive of itself as two quite distinct entities. One is that of the ego, or as Freud called it, simply just das Ich, the I, and we might also just refer to this as personality or temperament or character, which wants to capture some aspect of being or essence through a camera lens for some I-led agenda, and the other being, well, being, (laughs) or essence itself, with a capital B and E affixed to each word in order to make the reader or listener pause for a moment and sense very distinctly into your own being or essence in the unhinged listening space before that hinged personality takes over again. The door, you might say, that opens and closes between us and the world. The personality structure is, of course, a mental construct, a set of beliefs and internal representations, which is also complicit in shaping the raw material of our soul in the way that fluid poured into a mould or a river running through grooves in the landscape might flow or settle. At the moment, I have 2,828 images on my phone, each denoting a point of alive or attentive consciousness, each holding a wealth of meaning for the person who interrupted their ongoing lived experience, carried out for the most part on autopilot, in order to capture or stay or review an image as slight and inconsequential as as this image might appear to others. For us who make these images, who capture these images on our phone. These are the pearls of great price, as Aris Thomas calls them in his poem, The Bright Field. I have seen the sun break through, writes Thomas in his poem, to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price, he post hoc admonishes himself, the one field that had treasure in it. 
Are not so many of the photographs we take throughout the day similar to this turning aside that Thomas speaks of in the bright field, which he also describes as, quote, like Moses to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. What to do with all of these images that we create and store for ourselves? For most of us, they are left to gather imaginary dust somewhere in a cloud or on a disk drive, and we never or hardly ever look back at them. They function as virtual proxies for our pearls of great price, which we, being avaricious animals, store in virtual repositories in the same way that we store our financial assets. The hour is striking so close above me, so clear and sharp that all my senses ring with it. I feel it now. There is a power in me to grasp and give shape to my world. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. All becoming has needed me. My looking ripens things and they come toward me to meet and be met. I had a dream today, the day on which I am recording this, where I am furtively having sex with Lizzo. I think Lizzo is there because having woken up too early in this morning at about 4am and picking up and rereading a bit of J.M. Kutzia's disgrace, waiting for myself to fall back asleep again, I also managed to watch a whole bunch of Instagram videos of the aforesaid pop star twerking her sizable backside whilst playing impressive loops of classical music on a flute she calls Sasha. In the dream, she is surrounded by flunkies, but for some reason I am there too and invited into her bed. I am also aware that my ex-girlfriend might arrive at some point for a much-hoped-for reunion, and I think I do see her briefly in the dream perhaps at some swanky alley function or another, with her hair cut into a very short, boyish bob. Before the act of sex itself, Lizzo hands me some condoms, which don't configure to the standard sheath-shaped slipover, but instead come as two large Rizla papers rendered in polyurethane or polyisoprene, which need to be folded around the erect member on either side like two pieces of dough around a filling. I don't question the whys and wherefores of these out-of-the-ordinary prophylactics. This is perhaps the gift of dream work. Whatever life presents us with, we blithely forge ahead and just get on with it. Not having succeeded to any great extent in embodying the existential adroitness of radical acceptance in my supposedly woke or awake daytime state, I rewake from this dream troubled but also relieved to have been given access to a whole new tranche of the unconscious, with this one seeming to be filled up mostly with Lizzo. Recent dreams have been more dispiriting variations on a theme, the theme being that of a very four-shaped focus on disorientation, confusion, loss and despair. 
The previous night's dream had me wandering around a European city I'd never visited before with a group of people I'd only just met trying to get myself or someone else, I'm not sure in this case who, to hospital for a much-needed operation. Of course, being an anxiety or thriller-type dream, we overshoot our stop and are left wandering the streets with phones that are refusing to load our GPS apps. We try to find a metro station or call a taxi, all to no avail. It is a very dispiriting dream, and I am tired of having it. In fact, I am tired of having them in plural, for this is the dream that I dream more often than not. These are the boring dreams, the ones we have to have again and again, just like the boring neurotic thoughts. There is nothing in either that feels poetic or interesting or new. I try and write the boring dream down on waking, but lose interest in doing so halfway through, in having to repeat the outlines of a predicament that I have experienced multiple times and each time no more able to do anything to extricate myself from these unfortunate circumstances, the unfortunate circumstances of something we might call life. Having these dreams is like dreaming about eating a bowl of porridge or going to the toilet. What is there to remark on or to recall? And yet the mind, at least certain kinds of minds, persuasively do. One understanding of personality, and maybe even personhood itself, is that of an embodied ego structure. Freud certainly believed this was the case. The ego is not just in our heads. Each iteration of the ego, like each body has its own particular way of being in conflict with, of not being able to accept its conscious and or unconscious reality. Reality intrudes or forces itself into consciousness and is met in the human animal by egoic obstructions, fully integrated selves in many cases, that are formed through nature and nurture to intervene and resist feeling our feelings, thinking our thoughts, and seeing ourselves in action, also holding ourselves back from taking certain actions. No wonder the phrase, life is a dream, is also a truism for us clever clogs. To a certain extent, it really is a dream, with all of us trapped in our little ego boxes or cages, responding in a somewhat deterministic way to other living stimuli, who or which are doing the same, the pokes, the prods, the pleasures of being alive in a body run on this heart-based or instinct-based or head-based operating system, probably all three, but with the dominance for one. What we need is a harmonizing antidote to all of the kerfuffle. And is not Mary Oliver exactly that, a harmonizing antidote, which is why, of course, she gets dispensed in every poetry pharmacy across the land. Her poems are often concrete examples of not just the kind of ethical framework that we all might aspire to in order to achieve or maintain that elusive idea of the good life, but equally one that is not going to harsh our mellow. Her poems act as beautiful defense mechanisms, if you like, to keep us in a kind of groovy flow state, in a good frame of mind. So what might Mary Oliver's Ten Commandments for Living the Good Life sound like? 1. Meditate on death and loss, on finitude as often as possible. 2. Approach what scares or hurts you with curiosity and wonder. 3. Look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. 4. Look upon time as no more than an idea. 5. Consider eternity as another possibility.
6. Think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. 7. Think of each name as a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. Each and every name, presumably. Let's try that. Vladimir Putin. Hmm, maybe. 8. Think of each body as a line of courage and something precious to the earth. 9. Live your life in pursuit of amazement. Fall in love with everyone you meet and everything that happens to you, good or bad. 10. Don't try and attain anything and don't complain. Get on with the act of living, the gift of embodying life itself while you can. Aren't these the gentlest of commandments or imprecations? And yet, gentle as they are, they are also somewhat take charge in their certainty. The equation, of course, is quite simple. If you want to feel that your life is meaningful when death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, you should work really hard on manifesting a kind of love, a kind of holy love towards others, the world and yourself. And who can argue with that? It would be like arguing against your own creaturely existence. But I also think that Mary Oliver was, or is, for she continues to live in these poems, a point nine, a point nine personality type in expressing this vision, in this way. Nines are very good at this kind of thing. Their egoic defense against death, depression or some other pain or irritant is to focus on the positive and eliminate or go to sleep in some way on the negative. Don't harsh my mellow, as you can tell, is one of my favorite terms of the moment. And um, I picked it up from a client um, who was talking about a text from their point nine boyfriend and the message that this text essentially contained, which was basically, yeah, okay, I can hear you in some distress, but please don't harsh my mellow. <laughs> For I am a mellow marshmallow, says the nine, and will continue to be so, but only if you don't ever get in the way of me being mellow, doing mellow, seeing mellow, which is undoubtedly a beautiful and maybe even mystical ego space to inhabit. It's not one that I inhabit, but, wow, imagine being there. Other types do things a bit differently. Point ones keep reality at bay through a kind of perfectionistic striving so as to instantiate a self who is beyond criticism, who can never be condemned or blamed for anything. Twos focus all their energies on a give-to-get strategy for love and support. Threes achieve ambitious feats in the public eye in order to be validated before and beyond death. Fours exempt themselves from the rules of the game and try and make that their selling point. Fives, too, without making it their selling point. They don't give a shit. Sixes get lost in fear and paranoia. Sevens distract with fun stuff, and eights are all about control. Of course, all of these personality archetypes are also just our shared human arsenal and arsiness writ large, which is why the simplicity of Mary Oliver's How Not to Harsh Your Own and Others Mellow, that very simple nine vibe, Jesus was a nine, let us not forget, works pretty well for most of us as a reminder on what and where to focus when focusing in a positive psychological way on the good stuff, the light rather than the shade, knowing, whether it is a delusion or not, that this does really bring with it 
and it often does, infinite rewards, one of them being joy, the other we might call contentment or happiness. When I was doing the kind of in-depth research that I carry out for these episodes, like for example typing Mary Oliver Enneagram into Google and then reading a couple of Reddit posts, many agreed that the poet was indeed a nine, although some thought her a four, like the one talking to you here. I don't think Mary Oliver is a four. Rilke is a four, Pessoa is a four, Kafka a four, Sylvia Plath undoubtedly a four, Billy Eilish and Björk all fours, but Mary Oliver is a nine. And if you're not convinced of this, let me read for you the most point nine of Mary Oliver's poems. And what makes this a particularly nine kind of poem is that some, not me, but some might call this poem, for the manner in which it generalizes, pacifies and harmonizes, an almost bland entity. But for us fans of the type 9 personality, we might respond by saying, not all fair has to be complicated and packed with Otto Lenghi-like flavours. If this poem was a plate of food, I think it would be some delicious, homegrown, organic steamed vegetables dressed in salt, lemon and olive oil. Far from bland. Not bland at all, actually. Here's the poem. I want to write something so simply about love or about pain that even as you are reading, you feel it. And as you read, you keep feeling it. And though it be my story, it will be common. Though it be singular, it will be known to you. So that by the end, you will think, no, you will realize that it was all the while yourself arranging the words. That it was all the time words that you yourself out of your own heart had been saying. Sky.